Good morning, Cal Prairie. This is Pastor Chris, and I am here to share today's message. Now, we've been going through a series called What Do We Do With the Old Testament? based on Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible. And we're going to be finishing that series up next week. This week, we're taking a bit of a break from that to share a message that I've had on my heart. Now, this message is... Well, let me put it this way. I am happy that this is not a dinner table because my mom always taught me that there's two things I should not talk about at the dinner table, and we're going to be talking about both of those things here this morning. The first is religion, which honestly, it shouldn't be that surprising that I'm talking about it because I'm a pastor and it's Sunday morning. I think you would expect that. The second is politics. And I know that even as I said that word right there, some of you tensed up a little bit. Your anxiety went up a notch. Some of you might have even rolled your eyes and said, where is Chris going with this? And I understand. We are living in an environment right now where everything is political. Everything has been politicized. And, and I'm probably not the only one that feels that way. In fact, quick experiment. If you're watching this live, if you feel that Facebook is less fun now than it was three or four years ago, that there's too many politics on it, and your heart rate goes up every time you get on it, Click the heart button right now. Just, just let us know that you're in that camp along with me. Yeah, it's kind of a mess. Honestly, this whole year has been kind of a mess. It's been tough, really tough. I saw somebody joking the other day that maybe we really misunderstood that phrase, hindsight is 2020. Or I saw a tweet that said, my conspiracy theory is that time travel is real and someone keeps trying to fix 2020 by changing something, but every time they do, they unwittingly make it worse. How else do you explain the sudden disappearance of murder hornets? They saved us from those, but at what cost? Or I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that said, gonna ask my mom if that offer to slap me into next year is still on the table. If you're anything like me, you are ready for 2020 to be over because it has been tough and it has been a mess. And I hate to say this, but from now until November, the election, it's probably only going to get worse. That tense feeling, that anxiousness, it's gonna still be here and might get worse. Now, we're gonna pause from that for just a second and um, switch gears. I promise it all connects. But I grew up in a really evangelical environment. I was Southern Baptist. And we had our own kind of circle of heroes, our own saints. And one of those individuals was Billy Graham. I grew up with the deep admiration of Billy Graham. I 
Even though I was born in 1982, I didn't get to really see his ministry in, in its prime. I, I still followed his life story. When I got to college, I started reading some of the books that he had written and some of the books written about him, and eventually his very long autobiography. I, I loved seeing how God had used him. Now, this is a disclaimer. Billy Graham was not perfect. Billy Graham had his flaws. Billy Graham made some statements that I wish he hadn't, and he even expressed regret for. And so I know that he is not a perfect man by any means. But I do think that there is something about him to be admired. In fact, over the course of his life, he made Gallup's most admired person list a record 61 times. He received many other awards like the Congressional Gold Medal, countless honorary degrees, and citizenship honors all over the world. He was actually called America's pastor. I remember a time when I realized how true that was. My first year of college in 2001, that was when 9-11 happened. I remember those events unfolding so vividly even now. We just found ourselves shocked. We didn't know how to process everything. Three days after it happened, there was a prayer vigil that was held in Washington. And the country needed some words, some words of hope. And they called upon Billy Graham to deliver those words. The problem was all flights in the country had been grounded. And at that point, he was too frail to travel in a car for that long or on a bus for that long. So here's a cool bit of trivia for you. On September 14th, every plane in the country was grounded except one passenger plane that was given permission to fly Billy Graham to the prayer vigil in Washington. Now I remember sitting in the student union and watching him get up and deliver those words. And as he did, I realized why he was called America's pastor. I realized why he had won all those awards and made the most admired list. His words brought a sense of healing a sense of comfort, that they shared God's love in a way that was so desperately needed. So I have loved watching his life story. So what I want to do now is I'm going to show you a video. It's about four minutes long that kind of gives you an overview of where he got his start and what his calling was. So we're going to watch that now. It's not often one man is able to move the hearts of nations, to usher change across race and age. But when someone gives their life to a divine calling, amazing things happen. That is the legacy of Billy Graham. Tonight, I'm glad to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ can be received, your sins forgiven, your burdens lifted.
Billy was born in 1918, during the end of World War I. Growing up on his family's dairy farm in North Carolina, no one could have imagined what God had in store for this hardworking young man. When he was 13 years old, he was in a play at school. His voice carried so well. I says, I, I just think there's something in that boy that we haven't discovered yet. <laughs> at age 15, he was invited to hear a man named Mordecai Ham preach at a citywide revival meeting. I was taken by a friend, and I became fascinated. And then the Spirit of God began to speak to me as I went back night after night. And uh, one night when the invitation was given, I just said, Lord, I'm going. From this moment, life would never be the same for Billy. A new passion burned in his heart to see lives changed. He went on to college and began preaching the good news of Jesus to anyone who would listen. It was during those years of academics and Sunday sermons that Billy met Ruth. The young missionary girl raised in China would become his best friend, the true love of his life. And he would be the first to say that without Ruth, his growth as a preacher and evangelist would not have been possible. When I came out and saw her standing there, he said, that is Ruth Bell. At that moment, I was in love. And not only in love, something told me inside she'll be your wife. Now, it took her nearly a year to come to that same conclusion. Word of his powerful message spread quickly. He preached on the stages of concert halls and auditoriums and over the airwaves of radio and television. And soon, people began lining the streets by the tens of thousands just to hear him speak. Before we can have world peace, we must have peace within our heart. And bis wir Weltfrieden haben, müssen wir erst Frieden. There's only one road to heaven. You say, but if I believe God, isn't that enough? I want to tell you before you leave Madison Square Garden this night of May 15th, you can find everything that you've been searching for in Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. He was a mighty man. The Bible tells us that in spite of our sins and rebellion, that God loves us. As countless people responded to the move of God's Spirit, the demands on Billy seemed constant. But it was Ruth and their children that brought him strength and joy. Their home was a special place where he could simply spend time as a father and loving husband. These moments were precious to Billy. Yes, uh, there is a great sense of loneliness. And if there is a price to pay in this work, uh, it is that, uh, that I'm not with my children. God's calling on Billy's life took him from the largest stadiums to the most remote villages of Africa. He spoke not only of God's forgiveness, but also against the evils of racism, communism, and social injustice in our world. And don't let anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. He was one of the most sought after men of this age, turning down the political stage and Hollywood spotlight in order to continue his ministry to the lost, weary, and forgotten. His message was unfaltering, remaining true to the gospel and his steadfast faith in Christ. I'm asking you tonight to follow him, to serve him, to let him come into your heart and forgive you. Be forgiven. Know that you're going to heaven. Welcome back. Now you might be wondering, what does Billy Graham 
have to do with what you were talking about earlier, our country and where we find ourselves. Well, one of the key components to Billy Graham's ministry is that he was constantly interacting with leaders, government leaders. He had relationships with more presidents than I could name right now. They came to him and trusted him to give them advice and pastoral care. But even as he interacted with them, very rarely did Billy Graham become a part of partisan politics. He was able to avoid that and continue to be America's pastor no matter what political party those Americans were affiliated with. And I think that there's something there that we can learn. I think that Billy Graham can help teach us how to navigate the environment, the often toxic environment that we find ourselves in right now in 2020. And so there's two things that I think we can pull from his teachings that might help us that we're going to take a look at today. Now the first one is going to be introduced in a clip of Billy Graham from 1973 where he is speaking to a crowd. So let's take a look at that now. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk, because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. Now, what I love in that clip is that Billy says that we are not going to, to find the answers in Washington or the United Nations or in ourselves or in our money. That's not where we put our trust. We put our trust in Christ. There was another time he summed up this idea by saying, I'm trying to stay out of it and just keep preaching the gospel because there's nothing coming out of Washington or any of those places that are going to save the world or transform men and women. It's Christ. And I love that message. That is our first key point today. Christ is King. See, Billy knew that ultimately we were going to find our answers in Jesus. That while the government can provide some solutions, while government agencies can provide some solutions, the ultimate solution was going to be found in Christ. Let me give you a modern example of this. One of the things to come out of 2020, one of the good things in my opinion, has been this conversation about race. This greater awareness of the inequalities that are still taking place in our country. This realization that racism is still alive and well, and we have a lot of work to do. Now, out of that conversation has become a, a push for us to pass laws, 
Laws that make it harder to discriminate against people. And laws that provide more people with equal opportunities to pursue what the founders called life, liberty, and, and happiness. And there's been a push for reforms. Reforms in how we interact with authority and authority interacts with us. Reforms that allow us all to feel a little safer in our country. And all of those things are good. In fact, I hope those laws and reforms come to be. But even if they do, if people still have racism in their hearts, we still have a problem. The ultimate solution doesn't come from an institution. It comes from our salvation in Christ. We can't just fix the external things without fixing the internal things. We have to take a look in our own hearts and ask what work needs to be done there, where we need to trust Jesus more. There's a story in the Gospels that I think illustrates this really well. Now, to understand this story, you have to understand a little bit of the historical background. When Jesus was alive, the land that we now call Israel was occupied by Rome. In other words, Israel didn't have control over their own country. They were being controlled by another country. And that brought out a lot of mixed feelings. On one end of the spectrum, there was a group of Jews that called themselves zealots. That name was actually derived from the name of a small curved dagger that they were known to carry. And they were so against the Roman occupation that they were going to do anything to overthrow it. And so they became well known for always having one of those daggers hidden in the folds of their cloak. That if they found themselves in a large crowd standing next to a Roman authority figure or a Jew that they felt was too sympathetic to Roman's occupation, they would stab them right in between the ribs and the heart and create a scene where they would let everyone around them know, we will not tolerate this. On the other end of the spectrum, you had people that sympathized with Rome who looked at the occupation and, and said, how can I personally benefit from this? And so you have tax collectors. Jewish individuals who said, you know what, I'll collect taxes for the Roman government knowing that I can keep a little bit off of the top for myself. Now, I've never really met anyone that loves paying taxes, but imagine how much worse it would be if it was your neighbor collecting those taxes, but they weren't collecting them for the American government. They were collecting them for a government that had taken over America, and they did it with you knowing that they were going to keep a portion off the top for themselves. Imagine how you would feel every year when they came around, and then you look over and you watch them get a new car, a new boat. They remodel the house. And you can see how that wouldn't go over so well. You've got the zealots and the tax collectors and then a bunch of people in between. Now here's what I really love. When Jesus went to pick the 12 disciples, he included one of each of those in that group. Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. 
Can you imagine how tense, how anxiety-inducing it was to sit around the campfire with those two in the evenings? I mean, I could just imagine. Um, you know that, that, that thing you do with your kids when you know they're not supposed to have something, but they have the something? Now, they've got it hidden, but they just, you know. Like, you look at them, and, and you know they still have the thing. Imagine how many nights they're, they're sitting there, and Jesus looks over at Simon, and he's like, Simon, the dagger. I, give, give, me, give me the I don't know how you got it back. Give me the dagger. I'm going to put it in this box. You can get it back at the end of class, but give me the dagger. Imagine the tension that was there. This is where Israel found themselves. And then we have this story. A story that takes place in the later part of Jesus' ministry. He's traveled to the capital city of Jerusalem. So you know that tension in that city is even higher than it is anywhere else. And the religious leaders there, they want to try to trap Jesus. They're getting sick of Jesus and Jesus' talk of this new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and they want to get rid of him. And so this is what the story says. It says, watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so he would arrest Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you speak and teach what is right and are not influenced by what others think. So now they've set them up. They said, we know you're a good teacher, so answer us this question. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this is a no-win question. There's no way that Jesus can answer this publicly without getting himself in trouble. If he says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, give your money to the Roman government, he comes across to the Jewish people looking like a sellout, like a sympathizer, telling them to give their money up to this country that invaded them. But if he says no, here he is, a well-known teacher, arguably the most well-known teacher in the world at the time, encouraging his followers to actively break the law. He could literally be arrested for saying that. That's what they were trying to get him to say. And so he's trapped. There's, there's no good answer here. But then Jesus does something amazing. And to understand what he does, there's one more kind of background thing that you need to understand. They're in the temple. This is God's holy dwelling place. This is where all spiritual things were going to happen. And they had stricter rules there because they wanted to keep that place holy because it was God's dwelling place. And so they wanted to make sure that they were honoring all the commandments, the commandments of the Old Covenant that we've been talking about. And they wanted to make sure they were particularly honoring the, the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments says to not have any graven images. But the coins that they used as currency, much like our coins today, had graven images. They had a picture of Caesar on them, much like our coins have pictures of the founding fathers on them. 
And they were allowed to carry those coins around everywhere else. But if they were going to go into the temple, they didn't want to go into the temple and break one of the commandments. It's like cussing in a church parking lot. It's like, really here? Like, why? And, and so they wanted to make sure they didn't do that. So when they would enter into the temple, there were these tables, these, these, these coin changers that were there. And you would take your Roman coins with the graven images and you would trade them in for blank coins that you could take into the temple to buy sacrifices and, and, and other things so that you wouldn't be breaking that commandment. So keep that in mind as Jesus answers him. It says, He saw through their trickery and said, Show me a Roman coin. And at this moment, at this moment, you can see this individual that's trying to trap Jesus reach into their pocket and pull out a Roman coin. And when he does, you can hear the crowd, everybody standing around watching this happen. You can hear them gasp because here's a religious leader that's not supposed to have a graven image in the temple and out of his pocket, he's pulled a graven image. Jesus looks at him. And to drive home the point, he says, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now, you know there was a, smarky, a, a sassy, snarky teenager in that crowd that saw this play out and is just like, oh, whoo, this is awkward. Here is a religious leader pulling out this coin with a graven image and having to shout out that he's got it in front of everybody. So Jesus looks at him and says, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And this is how this interaction ends. What I love here is that you have this leader that wants to trap Jesus in a political conversation. A conversation about divisive policies in public that would hurt his credibility. But Jesus turns it around. In a sense, what he says to this teacher is, why don't you stop worrying about what coins are in other people's pockets and start worrying about the coins in your own pocket? Quit judging everyone else and take a look into your own heart and see if you're doing what's right. I think a lot of Christians could learn that lesson. That we want to fix everything out there everything involving other people, but we aren't willing to take a look in our own pockets, in our own heart. Going back to that issue of race, we should pass laws, we should pass reform, but we should also look into our own hearts, look into our own pockets and ask, is there any part of me that's racist? Maybe not even intentionally, but do I hold any biases that I need to, to rid myself of? Do I judge other people based on their appearances? And if so, what, what do I need to do to fix that? How can I turn to Christ more? How can I trust Christ more? Or as Billy said, how can I be transformed? Paul in the book of Romans in the 12th chapter says that it's Christ that renews our mind. 
allows us to see the world as God wants us to see the world. So that's point number one. Jesus is our king. We might look to earthly leaders, earthly institutions, and we might, we might find solutions there. We might put our trust in them. But ultimately, we have to put our trust in Christ and find the solution there. Because it's about our hearts and whether they're right. Because it's out of the heart that our actions are changed. And that's when real change can take place, real revolution changes, not when new policies come into existence, but when people start to see the world in a new way. That's real, meaningful change. That's revolution. And that's what I want to see in our country. Now, we're going to take another look at a clip from Billy Graham. And this is in an interview where he's asked about his relationship with politics and political leaders. And I want you to listen to how he answers this, this question he's asked. Some of the appointive positions which you have been offered, these must have tempted you. Well, I, I would have to uh, define temptation. There was one uh, or two that I thought about for a few hours before I said no, but in my heart I always knew that I would never do anything but preach. Suppose there were to be a public groundswell of support for Billy Graham for president, would you be able to turn your back on that? Uh, yes, I think I would. I think I have a higher calling. And yet you have made yourself available to several presidents as a counselor. Yes, I would be delighted to, uh, go, uh, to go to any president, regardless of which party that invited me and he wanted some counsel and advice, especially in moral and spiritual uh, problems or in other areas that I may have some knowledge of. But uh, I, would not, uh, I would not consider an appointed office. I remember when uh, I was asked to be uh, you know, one of the delegation to the United Nations by two presidents. And uh, I said no to that, uh, even though it might uh, have given me some platform that I might not otherwise have. But, uh, you know, Paul, I consider the call to the ministry the highest and most marvelous calling in the world because it's an eternal calling. And I wouldn't trade places with any president or any king. What I love about that clip is that Billy says that even if he could be president, he would turn it down. Even if he could be the most powerful person in the country, maybe even the world, he turns it down because he says that he has a higher calling. See, I think that Billy Graham understood that he was a dual citizen. That he was a citizen of America, but not just a citizen of America. It's kind of the same language that we see Paul use in the New Testament. See, Paul was also a dual citizen. He was a citizen of Rome. There's this great story in the book of Acts, it's one of my favorites to preach on, where Paul and Silas are out doing missionary work and they get arrested. They're beaten and thrown into a dungeon and all hope seems lost, but through a miracle, they escape. And God does some great things. 
But as they're getting ready to leave, Paul demands to speak to somebody in authority to let them know that he is a Roman citizen and it was against the law for them to do what they did. See, Paul was not ashamed of the fact that he was a Roman citizen. But Paul also goes on to write in the book of Philippians, which we just recently did a four-part series on. He writes these words, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our Savior. See, he understood his dual citizenship. Just like Billy, I think that he understood that he was a citizen of an earthly kingdom, of an earthly country, but also a citizen of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And that one of those was a higher calling than the other. And I think that's important for us to remember. In the 1980s, politics and religion started getting interwoven in a way that they hadn't before. And Billy Graham was asked about that. And his answer was really blunt. In fact, his answer is so blunt that there's an article on Snopes proving that he actually said it because it's that hard to believe. But what he said is that when any political movement tries to use religion for their own gain, for their own power, they manipulate it. And that, that is harmful to the gospel. And I think that's so powerful and, and, and so relevant for us today. See, we need to make sure that our politics are not manipulating our faith, but our faith is manipulating our politics. That it's our faith that's driving us. That it's our citizenship in heaven. That's our second key point, that we are citizens of heaven. That it's that that's driving how we act. See, we live under the Constitution. And I think the Constitution is a powerful document that laid the foundations for this great country that we live in and we are celebrating. But we don't just live under the Constitution. We also live under the Sermon on the Mount, under the teachings of Christ. So we might find ourselves in a situation where the Constitution lets us do something. But the Gospel says no. You don't do that because you love your neighbors. You have been called to something higher. Or we might find ourselves in a situation where our political party says, this is what we believe now. This is what we're going to proclaim now. But the gospel says, no. You're called to something higher. One Christian author says it like this. That if you're going to fly both the American flag and the Christian flag, please remember which one you fly the highest. Which one's at the top of the flagpole? Which citizenship is the higher calling? Or as one of my professors said, he was planning a conference this past spring about faith and politics, and I was on the planning team. And in one of our meetings, he said, we must remember... We do not follow the elephant. 
We do not follow the donkey. We follow the lamb. While we may find ourselves associated with a political party or a political movement, our allegiance is in Christ and in Christ alone. It is our faith that drives us. I think that is important for us. As we continue this mess of a year that is 2020, as we continue our march towards the election in November, Look, much like Billy Graham, America is not perfect. There are things in our history that I am not proud of. There are still things that need to be fixed and work that needs to be done. But I'm not ready to give up on her yet. But if we're gonna see change, it begins when we realize that Christ is our King and we are citizens of heaven. If we want our country to be better, we have to be better. And we make ourselves better by turning to Christ and letting him move in our lives. When Dan started the series, What Do We Do With The Old Testament? He talked about the poor view of Christians that many in the world have. And he was right. We got so much feedback after that message from people who could relate to that. And if we want people to look at us, admire our lives, see things in us that they would like in their own lives, that begins when we become Christ-like. When we follow Jesus as closely as we can. That's what I want to see us do. And I believe that when we do that, our country becomes a better place for everyone. I want to end this message today with a few last words of hope from Billy Graham. Don't let the headlines frighten you. Yes, we're living in a crisis period, but God is with us in the midst of the grief. In the midst of the suffering, God is there. Oh God, we don't understand it all, but we believe you are the great and the mighty God. God, I believe, I trust in you, even if I don't understand. God still loves, and he loves with such an everlasting love that he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you. And if it were not for that, there is no hope in the world. And those of us that follow him and serve him have a future that's brighter than tomorrow. It is our glorious task to give hope through the message of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to bring peace in a broken world. No matter what God has in store for us and for our world, let us be found faithful. And someday we will know all the strife and the injustice and the pain that infect our world today is someday going to be over. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.